Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Baha'i Blogcast, folks. So excited for this episode. We have a real-life doctor on the horn with us today. Dr. Hoda Mahmoudi, she is the chair, the Baha'i chair for World Peace at the University of Maryland, which is in College Park, uh, and has held that title since 2012. Um, very excited, and um, there's there's books and stories and erudition, and uh, this should be utterly fantastic. Dr. Mahmoudi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's really my pleasure to be here with you today. Oh, wonderful. I can't wait to hear your story. I really know so little about you. I mean, I've done some research here in preparation for the interview, but I'd love to know your personal Baha'i history and kind of spiritual history and journey that brought you to this position of uh, Baha'i Chair for World Peace. And and also, one thing we'd love to ask, especially the Persian believers that may have... Um, a, a deeper and larger family history is what's your Baha'i history of the Mahmoudis themselves? That's a very good question. I, I will disappoint some people because my Baha'i story is not perhaps as erudite and as, as elaborate as other Baha'i stories. But, but uh, let me just tell you that um, on my father's side, my grandfather was the first to become a Baha'i in a city called Yazd in Iran, which, you know, I don't, I won't, I won't go into it, but just briefly, Baha'is in Yazd always had turmoil uh, and, and difficulties because of the prejudices that existed against the Baha'is. Anyway, so my grandfather was the first to become a Baha'i in the family. Um, and ironically or interestingly, I think, for my sake, um, because it really helped my worldview. My mother, when she married my father, was not a Baha'i, but a Muslim. And she came from a very prominent Muslim family. Uh, you know, they were diplomats. They Some of them still are and accomplished great things. Anyway, my mother's father was against this marriage and did not like Baha'is. But you know, I, again, I won't go into detail. Eventually, my parents got married. My mother started to meet Baha'is and noticed that her husband goes to these meetings and this and that. And she started to read some of the books at home. And this is a similar story to many other families. She started to read about the Baha'i faith. And eventually, she really got attracted to the teachings, to the principles, um, and I don't know, perhaps because she came also from her, her mother's side, she was part of a very interesting tribe, the Lore tribe in Iran. And they are very, you know, independent people, very hmm. uh, exploratory, adventurous and all that. I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but my mother was very much that kind of a person. Anyway, five years after the marriage, she also became a Baha'i. Um, just to make a long story short, I don't want to dwell too much on my family, but uh, it, my parents wanted to leave Iran starting in the 
late 40s, they wanted to leave Iran. Um, and part of it was because there were directives that if, you know, if they can spread uh, around the world, it would be a good thing to do as a Baha'i uh, and to go serve as a Baha'i in other parts of the world. So hmm. my father tried all kinds of ways. He was in agriculture at the time in Iran and was very much involved in um, the modernization of agriculture in that country. As it turns out, uh, one time he, he, well, he tried to go to South Africa. He tried to go to India. There was no way that he could go there and make a living and support a family of three children. So ultimately he ended up going as a graduate student to Utah State University in Logan, Utah. And this was in 1959. So That's my family... crazy. That's <laughs> I absolutely know it is. nuts. Uh, uh, an Iranian agriculturalist goes to Utah State University in the yeah. 50s. Yeah. And wow. you know, Utah State University to this day is a very, um, it's a very uh, reputable land-grant university, meaning the universities in this country that were founded pre predominantly yeah. to uh, advance agriculture. So anyway, so here comes these fresh off the boat, Mahmoudi family, <laughs> literally fresh off the boat in New York City, and then traipsed across the country to Utah on a train. Um, you know, we come to this town of probably Logan in 1959 was somewhere between, uh, I would say, six to 7,000 people, I'm not sure, but not very large. And, you know, we stood out <laughs> in every way. But it was a very good experience, I have to say, and I, I would like to just say a little bit about my parents' approach to moving to Utah, which was, they basically told us that we're now in a new setting. We are in a new culture, we're in a new country, and that we need to, meaning their children, I have an older brother and sister and myself, that we children need to be as engaged in learning about the environment we are in and that, you know, they would be inviting all kinds of people into our home and uh, wanting to learn themselves about <clears throat> this country that we have moved to. Now, at that time, I didn't fully understand this. You know, I, to be honest, I was 10 years old. I didn't quite grasp what all that meant. But... But there were other things that they would tell us. I remember for the there was a there's a Baha'i New Year, which actually coincides with in Iran, with kind of a it's it's a secular New Year, really. It's not a religious New Year. And and they told us that now that we're in this new country and this new city, that we would celebrate this differently than we did in Iran. That the gift giving and all of that would probably not occur. Uh, and that, you know, it would just be different. It doesn't matter. We can share that this day is important to us with our friends and all of that. But little by little, they, in a sense, wanted us to acclimate to the culture, which was a predominantly Mormon culture that we mm. had moved into. And, of course, the, the Mormon culture became very apparent 
even to me as a fifth grader, very quickly, because mm. I think in a class, in my fifth cl grade class, I was probably the only one who was not a Mormon. And uh, I knew this because, you know, the others in my class all went to their Mormon events uh, that they mm -hmm. had throughout the week. And so it, it you know, it, it was helpful that my parents said that you need to learn as much as you can about the environment you're in. I, I have to say that that has helped me throughout my life. And it has even helped my identity. I think it's strengthened my identity as a, a woman, as a Baha'i, as um, someone who, you know, at, at 10 years old is put in a culture where I don't really totally fit in. You know, I think that mm -hmm. attitude of my parents really helped me a lot uh, because, oh. uh, because there is an openness that my whole family has to the world, so to speak. And I appreciate that. And I think we all got that from my parents. Oh, that's great. What, what, I'm just fascinated by this Persian family in Logan, Utah. What, what was that like? <laughs> and, and this was the, mostly the early 60s? Very conservative was, time and a very yeah. conservative place. Um, yeah. Well, I, I don't know what to go into and what not to go into, but it, it, was, it was a conservative place. And I remember my older sister telling my father one time that I thought we had, we, you told us we were coming to a modern world and a modern place where women would be able to get their proper education and this and that. You know, my parents were very interested, especially in their two daughters, getting the highest education they could, because again, that follows with their Baha'i ideals. Um, and my father asked her why, and she conveyed to him that all of her advisors at the university were telling her that she should not pursue engineering or pre-med, but rather home economics. And so she, <laughs> she was a little flabbergasted by this response from an authority figure. You know, again, mm -hmm. this was an mm -hmm. authority figure. So, um, you know, we worked through some of those things, uh, and, and always there was a desire by Mormon missionaries for us to become Mormons, and, and that was wonderful because, again, when they came to our home, my parents engaged them. We learned about the Mormon religion during these exchanges. And, you know, I, uh, Ray and I spent 35 years of my life, more than any of my other family members in Utah. And uh, the missionaries never stopped coming to our home, you know, so mm -hmm. it's, it was mm -hmm. very interesting. But, but all of that to say there was cultural shock the, the, sure. uh, uh, with this move. But I'm sure we also shocked the people who came into contact with us. You know, I'm saying it goes mm -hmm. both ways. I think we all felt that, you know, we stood out. We were a different-looking family. Uh, mm -hmm. We were mm -hmm. different-looking people. And I think each of us adjusted to that in our own way. It, I don't want to make it sound all pleasant. It wasn't. You know, there were times where, and I'll speak for myself, there were times when it was evident that I didn't fully belong, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, it was evident that I was somewhat different, you know, because there was a, 
you know, when I would get invited to my friends' homes and I'd see how they function, what their family is like, and then I go back to my home. And there were cultural differences, obviously, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think generally we all in our own different ways um, try to do our best to adjust and to survive and to make the best of it. And and there was so much that was really uh, good. And I, I want to share one more thing, if I may. You know, when we moved to Logan, Utah, one of the things that I realized by playing with the other children my age in our... Uh, we were living in student housing at the time. Um, mm. And I realized that we were all free to be out there on our own. Now, in Iran, you know, first of all, all the houses are walled in, right? And Mm -hmm. when you go outside of the house, meaning there are no more walls, you're on this um, little street where your house is located. When you go outside, especially as a girl, I had to have my brother or some older adult that was always with me. Mm. This was always the case and you know so in in Iran I wanted to learn how to ride a bicycle and the only person that could do that was my brother and and so I had to be out there always with him even after I learned how to ride a bicycle well in Logan Utah I got my own bicycle and I you know the city was my domain. I could go anywhere, although my parents would rather I stay close to home. But I'm saying that it gave me this feeling of freedom, which was incredible, you know, mm-hmm. as, as a young girl in particular. So, you know, there were also those sorts of changes that were very positive and very different for me. Mm. And that's fascinating. Um it, it feels like a movie. It feels like this uh, a Persian family in in the middle of Mormon Utah in the in the early sixties. Uh, but just out of curiosity, like because I've never really shared the Baha'i faith with many Mormons, what would you suggest if you were in a conversation with Mormons or talking to Mormons and telling them about the Baha'i faith? Um, if you wanted to, you know, teach the faith, share the faith with them, are there um, points of commonality or you know, what What direction would you uh, advise? Lots of points of commonality with the Mormons. Generally, the Mormons have a very strong um, value system, if I may put it that way. Uh, mm. they, they are very strong in terms of their ethical and moral perspectives on life. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Work is extremely important. To Mormons, you know, that you, mm-hmm. you work and you then are able to help not only through the tithe for the Mormons, your religion, which is different in the Baha'i faith, but I'm saying work is worship, which is what the Baha'is believe. This was a similarity. Uh, mm. and, and just, you know, uh, for example, they have, just as Baha'is believe that drinking alcohol can fog the mind and it's basically better to leave our cognitive perceptions alone Uh, the mormons also believe that we should refrain from alcohol or drugs that that Mm -hmm. impact Mm -hmm. the the mind um and very strong in terms of family 
and, and the family is extremely important. So there are many points, I think, uh, of commonality. I, I mean, many of my friends in high school, not many, but several of my friends in high school from a Mormon background became a Baha'i because they were interested in what my religion was about. Um, I married a sixth-generation Mormon. I'm divorced now, but I married a sixth-generation Mormon who became a Baha'i and who mm. is still a Baha'i. And uh, I'm very proud of that because that family of, of my ex-husbands, uh, they were actually told by the prophet Brigham Young to go and settle this section of southeastern Idaho. So we, I have one son, and so I, I made sure, and he's very good about it. He knows both sides of his heritage. Uh, in fact, his Mormon side is so impressive because he can trace it back to the 1600s <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> through the genealogy. Anyway, um, I think because Mormons believe in the value of religion, uh, from mm-hmm. that angle, there's much that there's in common with the Baha'i faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, let's move ahead a little bit. Sure. What brought you to ultimately uh, being a, a Baha'i chair for world peace? <laughs> well, you know... Connect, connect the dots. Okay. Uh, bring oh, us, that's... Yeah. Bring that's us a, from the early 60s to 2012. <laughs> Lots of dots. Anyway, so I eventually um, went to university. I got my PhD in sociology, and I knew in high school that I wanted to be in academics, whether that would be, uh, you know, in what field I didn't know in high school, but I wanted to be in academics. So, Mm. uh, and my father became a university professor at the University of Utah eventually. So anyway, after I received my PhD, I started to work at different colleges and universities, first in Salt Lake City, Utah at Westminster College, then in uh, Southern California at Cal Lutheran University, and then in Michigan, in Chicago. So I have been in academics all of my life, and Mm -hmm. I have Mm -hmm. loved the fact that I have had the pleasure of being in academics all of my life. Because it has been a place where my mind is always engaged. I am always learning new things, ideal things, wonderful things. And also learning to separate the not so good from that which is very valuable. Mm. Ultimately, in Chicago, uh, so I, I was in Chicago in 2001, an opportunity arose where I was able to go and uh, serve in the research department at the Baha'i World Center, which is the spiritual and administrative headquarters of the Baha'is of the world, located in Haifa, Israel. Hmm. You know, the research department is where you write commentaries. Questions are asked about, you know, what does the Baha'i faith think about this or that or whatever, and Hmm. questions Hmm. are asked, and you write a commentary. Uh, Mm. which then, it can't just be fully your own opinions. It is based on Baha'i texts. Mm -hmm. So you have Mm -hmm. to cite Baha'i texts to say, this is how the Baha'i faith views issues on climate change, on uh, uh, abortion, on, I mean, you name it, on um, uh, how to educate your children, um, right, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
So And I'm sure I'm sure there were also like really small ones. Like this is how um, <laughs> yes. you know, like obscure, Many. obtuse little uh, teachings about uh, Baha'i haircuts or something like yes. that. Yes, those are easy to answer. <laughs> anyway, yeah. so, you know, so I uh, eventually I was um, asked to be the coordinator, which is like the head of that department. And, and I spent 11 years in, in uh, uh, that department. And it was very interesting because I learned again so much uh, about the archives uh, where we have wonderful manuscripts from the from the original writings of the prophet founder, mm. his uh, the other uh, leaders of the faith, and about mm. the library. You know, I, the the research department had to coordinate with these other departments uh, because that's mm. how we got our work done. And then eventually, um, uh, I was approached quite honestly by. Uh, a member of the National Spiritual Assembly of the United States uh, when I was here at an Association for Baha'i Studies conference. I had come mm. from Israel. Mm. Whether I would be willing or co to consider applying for the position at the University of Maryland for the Baha'i Chair for World Peace. I mm. won't go into too much details, but I eventually went back to Israel, consulted with some people, then decided it was okay to apply. And I did, and then I was interviewed, and then I was offered the job. So I came to the U.S., back to the U.S. in July of, actually June of 2012. Mm -hmm. And so that's mm -hmm. my story. That's how I ended up where I am today. That's an amazing story. And I, I love that you were a sociologist. I um, And, of course, Dr. Nader Saidi has got his start in sociology as well. Right, and, right. And, and doesn't... Doesn't Shoghi Effendi, at, in one of his writings, talk about the importance of studying sociology? Yes, yes. Among others, he mentions sociology. He mentions economics and history as well. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's, it's simply because, you know, the Baha'i faith is so much about social change and transformation of society and of the individual yeah. that sociology mm -hmm. really fits that very well. And what was your area of expertise and study in, in the field of sociology? In sociology, I um, was very interested in complex organizations, so large systems, uh, in, and then in medical sociology, so how does medicine impact as an institution, society, and then with another specialization in cross-cultural or cross-national research, how to do research effectively when you cross cultures. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. I, I, I love that field. I love reading in sociology. And um, and it's exactly what you describe that, you know, I'm, I'm captivated by the big ideas of like, exactly. how, what, let's look at societal change in the past and how societal change might happen in the future. And, mm -hmm. you know, movements and trends and uh, cultural ideas that, you know, spark change. Uh, it's a really exciting, it's an exciting field. It is. I, I, I agree. I very much agree. But if I can interject, coming to the Baha'i chair has changed all of that because now I have to be very interdisciplinary. Okay. What the Baha'i chair does is basically examine the Baha'i principles related to peace and to try to then invite scholars, academicians, or practitioners to talk about their research 
that actually tells us something about these principles that are in the Baha'i faith. So for example, in the Baha'i faith, and, and, and I want to focus now on Abdu'l-Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah. Uh, Abdu'l-Baha became, as you know, the head of the faith after the passing of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the faith. And he wrote these amazing tablets in 1919 and 1920. Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote these tablets. They're called the Tablets to the Hay. But in those tablets, he actually outlines the Baha'i vision for world peace. And he says basically two things that I'll focus on. He says that peace has to start with the individual and then move towards nations. And that the biggest barrier to peace is human prejudice. And then he lists them. Race, politics, economics, religion, that these form the major prejudices, that if you study them carefully, you will see why they always promote uh, violence, contestation, uh, and, and that until these prejudices are removed, we will not have peace. And then he says, but the only way to bring understanding about prejudices and about wanting to have peace is to raise consciousness, to raise our consciousness about these issues that impact us. So at the Baha'i chair, we've taken what Abdu'l-Baha has said, and we've come up with five areas or five series that we focus on. And, and these are, we've put them in different terminology to meet the demands of today, but structural racism and the root causes of prejudice is one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay. globalization and governance, human nature, the advancement of women in peace, and the last one is the environment and climate change. So this, this is where the interdisciplinary nature of the work comes in, which is, you know, you cannot know anything about any subject under any of these five series without reading very broadly from all the fields that are available to us. And um, so the Baha'i Chair invites scholars to come and talk about these five topics in order to further our understanding of how to remove the barriers in these five areas that impede the progress of the world and society as a whole towards a more peaceful existence. How did you settle on those five areas of study um, or not, uh, not study, of, of focus for the Baha'i chair? The first thing I did was to read everything that I could find in the Baha'i writings on the topic of peace, which is a lot. I mean, the whole religion, basically, the goal of the religion <laughs> is to establish world peace, you know. So, mm -hmm. but, but I read uh, the writings, uh, and in particular, I went to this um, document that the House of Justice wrote in 1985, uh, called The Promise of World Peace. And it was addressed to the peoples of the world. So it's addressed to every individual on this planet, which is so wonderful, you know, that it's, it, again, the, it's the inclusiveness of the Baha'i religion that this message conveys. In there, they actually list the, what they refer to as barriers to peace. 
But then they also add, and this is extremely important, that the barriers are racism, economic inequalities, the lack of universal education. You know, they list the barriers. But then they say there is a prerequisite that is just as important to peace, which is the equality of women. And they go on that until women enter all the arenas of society, every aspect of society. Abdu'l-Bahá in one of his speeches says, oftentimes we think women, that in the past it was thought that women should just be homemakers and have children. He says, no, now in this day, women have to be everywhere because they will be the ones who will put an end to war. So so I read the Baha'i writings, and these were the very important issues that came out uh, in relation to uh, what we should focus on if we're talking about world peace. Oftentimes, uh, Rain, we don't talk about a holistic peace that considers the entire human race on this planet. Mm-hmm. Often we focus on how can we stop war? Mm. Now, I agree, war is not a good thing. And yes, we have to end wars. But that isn't the way we get at peace. Uh, ending all the wars will not bring about peace because we still have these prejudices. We still don't have the equality of women. So that's why this holistic approach to peace becomes so important. And the undercurrent, and I have to tell you that the Baha'i chair is very keen on this, we are interested in the spiritual principles. We are interested in the values that we all need to embrace. And oftentimes we ask our speakers if they would be willing to speak to that. And ironically or interestingly, most of them touch upon this at some point, that, Mm. you know, it's the ethics, it's a, a form of it's a culture of ethics that has to be developed in order to be able to uh, really bring about a society that is at peace and, and considers the well-being yeah. of the whole. You know, it's interesting because I listen to a lot of lectures and a lot of podcasts, and a lot of them touch on these topics. Mm-hmm. And more and more, the kind of secular left uh, academia and authorities in those realms are coming to this kind of vaguely and kind of through a back door, but they're coming to this idea that religion just might be the answer or that spirituality Mm -hmm. might just be the answer or both together. Because more and more you'll hear, you know, really, you know, dyed-in-the-wool atheists saying, you know, religion has something. You know, it has ethics. It has community. It has a vision of a larger world. It has service as a key component. Um... It's about heart and connectivity, and you'll hear this being brought up more and more. I think people are seeing, as these systems are breaking down uh, increasingly, that there might just be some keys to the issues of you know chaos and disillusion happening all around the world um, through through some kind of religion. They're not saying, oh, you should become ex-religion or anything like that, but there are there are some foundational aspects of religiosity that um, humanity could benefit from. That I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think there is a trend in that direction. And, and coming from, as you said, areas where one would not have thought 
that that these comments would be made. Um, I think, you know, I think with the Enlightenment, um, going back in history, although many will say, well, the Enlightenment couldn't have happened if we didn't get rid of religion, I, I think that's questionable. And I think there's enough scholarship now that questions that as well. That mm -hmm. religion never, ever really left the scene. You know, I mean, Martin Luther, who started the, you know, Reformation, I mean, that it, it was an aspect of a reaction to perhaps religion holding back certain things from progressing, especially science. But there's always been religion present in our, in our uh, world. And I think more and more nowadays people are beginning uh, to realize that the, the power of religion to bring good values, you know, good solid values of, of, of what it means to be a human being, what it means to be about solidarity and about, you know, understanding one another and working with each other to achieve great things. You know, religion has a role to play in that uh, because of its spiritual nature. And we went a little bit too far with the secularization. And I think now there's more thought being given to what, how, how can we reconcile the secular and the religious. I want to go back to something you were saying before about how when you donned the mantle of Baha'i Chair for World Peace, I imagine you were like, uh-oh, I better learn about world peace. <laughs> and I'm sure you were pretty... Uh, uh, you know, filled in on the topic already. But in that in that deep study that you did on the Baha'i take on world peace, what um was there anything you learned that surprised you that that you were reading and were like, wow, I never would have thought of that as being an important component to peace? And that that's a very good question. I think what eventually through my study really jumped out at me was this notion that love is more important than peace because you cannot have peace without love so there is almost there's a there's a causality here if i may put it that way mm. abdul baha continually brings this up in in his writings in his utterances, you know, at, in fact, if we read about his talks in this country, this comes up, that, you know, if you create peace, if you think you have a peaceful society, it will not last, because it has to have love. There has mm. to be love. And of course, love is such a uniquely human expression, you know, and I'm not trying to take away from the animals, but, but, you know, they, <laughs> they are more wired, right? They're more wired than we are. So, so in, in some ways it's a different kind well, of, what, what we often perceive <laughs> as love coming from our doggies and our kitties is actually like, feed me. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, so, but love is such a uniquely human, uh, uh, concept and and, and, yeah. a, and a beautiful concept. So so that's the one thing that really jumped out at me uh, when I was studying the Baha'i writings on so, peace. So maybe it needs to be the Baha'i chair for world love. <laughs> yes, um, because really, I, I love what you said before, and this is uh, I, I often underline this when I'm speaking about the Baha'i faith is that 
peace is not the end of war. Peace is something much deeper and uh, has much deeper bonds um, and has and needs to have kind of a, a more far-reaching systematization to protect that, you know, peace is a feeling that, as you say, is connected to love. And how does how does justice fit into that? You know, there's a lot of talk right now about, like, can you have peace without justice? Well, I mean, obviously there's that chant, no justice, no peace. But mm-hmm. can you have peace without justice? Can you have, you know, unity without justice? How does How does that factor in? You know, all of these are so important. They're such complex concepts uh, and so important. Um, let me put it this way. Again, if, if love is the foundation, it implies that we want through love the well-being of everyone, not just my own or my family, but everyone, not only my my own co-religionist or my own tribe or whatever, but everyone. I think this is, again, a very important concept. So if there is this love for humanity, if you will, Mm -hmm. then we would want to have the bare minimum of the best for everyone, just flat Mm -hmm. out, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, And that means that all of these systems that create injustices cannot function if our goal is to move towards the well-being of everyone, which then implies the justice, that if there are inequalities, well, how do we bring about justice? And to bring about justice, I think this is really important. And this is something that I've learned from the letters written by the Universal House of Justice again, that oftentimes... We as human beings, from a very wonderful um, root of our desire, want to solve the problems that we are confronted with. So, you know, women's rights, racism, inequalities, whatever the problem, we want to jump into that cause and do whatever we can to just say this is bad and we want to change this. That's all good and fine. But the House of Justice says that until we actually come together and consult about these very complex matters that require our best of thinking and our best action, until we agree on principles, what are the principles that we agree on in order to eliminate racism? in order to mm-hmm. eliminate inequality. Unless we do that, we will not have unity because we will be going in every which direction. You might want to go uh, and join this cause. I'll go join this. You know, none of us are together in trying to solve these causes together. Mm. So until principles, you know, that we would like our systems, our institutions, not to discriminate, to be open to everyone, to give opportunity to everyone. Well, again, how do we do that? What are the principles? What are the spiritual as well as the material principles that we have to consider in order to make those changes? That unity becomes so important because then you can take your results of your discussions, which you've unified around, into the realm of action, and then to bring change to the institutions, hopefully. 
Now, mm. what I'm talking about is a long process. It takes a long time. It takes effort. It takes discipline. But it's so important to arrive at that unity because that will ultimately lead to justice. And let's go back to something else you said. You said, essentially, Abdu'l-Bahá, in these letters to The Hague in uh, 1919 and 1920, talked about these obstacles to peace. And, and one of them, he said, like, essentially said that famous bumper sticker from the 70s, let there be peace in the world and let it begin with me. But um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think world peace can feel daunting to people. You know, I'm a exactly. carpenter or I'm a dental it's, aide or, right. you know, right. um, you know, I'm working at a rental car place. Like, how do I achieve world peace? Well, sure. you know, there there are practical steps that you can help with that. And yes. do you want to talk a little about that? Absolutely. I think that's a very important, great question because... Because peace does not belong to any one person or any one group. Quite frankly, every individual, I don't care who they are, uh, if they can begin to, I mean, each of us needs to first examine ourselves. You know, in fact, there's this great quotation of Baha'u'llah's that before you go out there to mend other hearts, first look at your own heart and get it in order and then Mm -hmm. see what you can do in the world. But I think every individual has attitudes, has behaviors that can promote peace, if I can put it that way. So how, I'm I'm going to start with having respect for, you know, love, of course, is the most important, but let's say someone doesn't really want to love someone. Okay. But definitely we have to respect one another. We have to accept that every human being uh, is endowed with nobility and and dignity and in these ways an individual can transform him or herself in order to actually start a process where their attitudes their behaviors towards others promote this uh, idea of peace which is which is really about how do we get along with each other it's it's as simple as that how do we show respect to each other uh, and it can be anyone. Again, it, it can be a child, it can be a, a, an adult, an older person, in whatever profession, in, in whatever setting. Uh, but it, it's how we treat each other that becomes the most important thing. So wouldn't you say that the uh, the core activities of the Baha'i faith are really peace promotion activities? I mean, it may not seem like it, but if you have Absolutely. a Ruhi study group or a children's class or a junior youth service program that you're you're helping create like a microcosm of world peace? Yes, of course. Of course, because in all those activities, uh, again, what guides those activities are the spiritual values. And those spiritual values, uh, which I think are universal, speak to the heart and the soul of the human being. And yes, in all those activities, that's exactly what the Baha'i community is is aspiring to accomplish. Hmm. So tell us about this book. Yes. You co-wrote with Dr. Janet Kahn a book called A World Without War, Abdu'l-Bahá and the Discourse for Global Peace. Now, I'm sure you've already touched on some of the concepts um, in our conversation previously, but can you tell us about this book and and what it's all about? Sure. Well, you know, as I said, 1920 was when the last tablet 
was written by Abdu'l-Bahá to this organization at The Hague that I'll talk about in a minute. And so in 2020, I thought it would be important that not only the Baha'i chair, but I myself, and of course Janet was willing to write this book with me, uh, to acknowledge the anniversary of what happened uh, in, in uh, 1920 when Abdu'l-Bahá wrote these tablets, uh, which are called the Tablets to the Hague. So the book basically outlines how if we look back at 1919 and 1920, I mean, you know, there was a horrible war, World War I, that occurred at this time and forever shifted the political uh, powers of the planet. Uh, I mean, empires collapsed because of that mm -hmm. war. So it was, a, it was a huge impact that it had. But prior to that war, there were hundreds of women's peace movements and all kinds of organizations that are, were trying to come up with the means to stop this war or to you know, not go in this direction of militarization and hostility. So one of these organizations was called the Executive Committee for the Central Organization uh, for a Durable Peace, long title, and I'll just call it the uh, Committee for the Central Organization for a Durable Peace, okay? This was a committee that was located at The Hague in Holland, and their whole aim was to find means to bring peace by getting nations and empires to collaborate together, come together, so that they could prevent war. So to make a long story short, I have to tell you a little quick story because Please. this organization sends advertisements through all the newspapers around the world. And a young 24-year-old Iranian uh, engineer, his last name is Yazdani, he reads this article in an Iranian newspaper and he's taken aback at how much it reflects what the Baha'is are saying, you know, what the Baha'i writings are saying about world peace. There were so many similarities. So he writes a letter to this organization at The Hague and says, you know, we're keenly interested in your cause and we'd like to support it. So then he informs Abdu'l-Bahá that he's done this and that the organization has written back and said, well, we'd like to hear from you. What is it that you're doing? So he writes Abdu'l-Bahá, and, and I'm shortening the story. You have to read it in the book. But then Abdu'l-Bahá says, well, you have to come to Haifa in the present-day Israel. You have to come here because we have to talk about this. This is a very important thing that you've run across, and we want to you know, discuss with you how to move forward. Anyway, Mr. Yazdani, Ahmad Yazdani, had consulted with some elderly and, and very wise Iranian Baha'is at the time, and one of them... Uh, who was a hand of the cause, Ibn Astaq, was also called to go to Haifa and meet with Abdu'l-Bahá. When the two arrive there, Abdu'l-Bahá has already had a translated uh, letter of his, a tablet, translated into English, and Shoghi Effendi helped him do this translation. Uh, yeah. And um, he says, I want you to deliver this to this organization in The Hague. So these two men, and I, I have to describe them. One is 
in a Western suit, Western hat, tie, and the other has the traditional Persian uh, dress, you know, they go 40 days, they travel. And, and that travel is in and of itself very interesting. In 1919, you can imagine how difficult mm, it was to get mm. there. Anyway, they get to The Hague, and they cannot find this organization. And they, you know, neither speaks Dutch. Uh, Mr. Yazdani spoke French, so that helped. Eventually, they tracked down the organization to find out that because the war broke out, it had really just... Uh, become a very small organization and only had a secretary and a president. Despite oh all goodness. this, they delivered Abdu'l-Baha's letter mm. to them. And, you know, so when I talk about individual action and peace, you know, here's this 24-year-old in Iran who later on I found out through some of his family members who live in California that, you know, that full year, his wife had to survive in Iran without, you know, any income or anything because mm. th th these guys left, you know. So anyway, it's a profound story. It's an amazing story. But I tell the story because it tells us something about the fight for peace, if I may put it that way, that this young man decided to do this but then the head of the faith, Abdu'l-Bahá, tells him it's a great cause, it's a worthy cause. Let's see how we can engage them in discussion, in discourse. And although one could conclude that it didn't come to much, you know, these all of this effort, I would beg to differ. Because if it wasn't for the tablet that Abdu'l-Bahá wrote, we would not have had this amazing insight into the Baha'i approach to peace. Subsequently, the organization wrote back to Abdu'l-Bahá, and, and again, I don't want to go into too much detail, but that action led to Abdu'l-Bahá writing them again, so a second tablet was sent, and that's also mm. featured in the book. And in there, he furthermore reiterates everything that he said before, knowing that this organization is no longer what it used to be. Mm. Abdu'l-Bahá worked like this. He, in all of his interactions with any human being, he always found ways to find commonality of understanding, camaraderie, and then to discuss the major issues of the day from a Baha'i perspective. Hmm. And, and I think in this book, we simply try to show how here we are a hundred years later, all the efforts that are still ongoing everywhere, within the Baha'i community and without, about how to bring about peace in the world. And these must have been some of his very last tablets because he passed away a year later. They are. They are, they are very much his last tablets. Wow, that's, and that's that's fantastic. I, I, I had no idea that these tablets now, existed. Now, I have to tell you, these tablets were written a little bit earlier. I think they were written in 1915, but still they're later ones. And by the time these men could get to The Hague, it took that long. But they were dated uh, 1919 and 1920. And they are later tablets, and they are just a wonderful summary, full of wisdom and knowledge. I mean, really 
things that for the indefinite future, not only university students, but everyone should study to see how we can bring what he says into action. Mm. Tell us more about A World Without War. So basically, the book it looks at... Um, it looks at how Abdu'l-Bahá engaged society and the people in society. It speaks to how current Abdu'l-Bahá was, how he read everything that was important for his time. You know, he, was, he read what scholars wrote. He read newspapers. He was informed of politics. He was informed of economics, of agriculture, of everything that mattered to society. But he also engaged. He, he met with religious leaders, with world leaders. In his trip to the U.S. in, in 1912, which, you know, again, there are books that people can read about that, he met with every possible type of individual you can imagine, from the leading leaders of the U.S. to the children in certain organizations to women in certain certain organizations with with uh, he visited synagogues and gave talks in synagogues in churches at, at at universities and in all of his interactions he was for, first and foremost this international figure who was open to everyone and every idea and, and when you read his speeches, you begin to see how not only his almost superhuman knowledge about everything, but his ability to talk about all kinds of topics that dealt with scientific matters, with social sciences. He, he always spoke in a way that everyone could understand his logic and his uh, ideas. So in the book, uh, we, we capture a little bit of this, how he was engaged. He was part of the life of society. He wasn't just, even though he should have been an isolated person, for crying out loud, for over 40 years, he was a yeah. political, political prisoner, you know? Yeah. But he was engaged. He knew about everything, you know? And, and I think that's a lesson for all of us. Yeah, I think a lot of Baha'is are under the misconception that, oh, we shouldn't even worry about anything happening in the old world order. You know, that's that which we shouldn't concern. And it's true, we shouldn't concern ourselves with the, you know, vicissitudes and ups and downs of partisan politics. But, you know, what's happening with climate change, with race, what's happening in academia and in all of these different fields of studies, are, are Absolutely. it's important for our if we're if we're asked to be in in social discourse in elevated discussions, then we need to know what we're discussing. Yes, I think that's so important. You know, yes, we don't get engaged in partisan politics because it destroys unity. Absolutely, but that doesn't mean we cannot be and must be informed about politics. Otherwise, how do we understand our world? That's a large part of our world. If we divorce ourselves from that, we really can't understand what society is going through and what all of us are experiencing and how to respond to each other in a positive way, you see. And I want to just give an example that when Abdu'l-Bahá had a group of Baha'is settle 
in one part of, you know, the Levant at that time in the mm-hmm. Middle East. Mm-hmm. He had a group of Baha'is go and he, he purchased land. And again, we tell this story in the book. And, and this is just prior to World War I. He tells them, and he knows about the latest agricultural stuff. And he tells them, he says, you need to start planting and, and you need to make sure that we have a good harvest and all that. And because of his foresight, you know, the story is that enough wheat was produced that eventually he was able to feed the starving populations of then mandatory Palestine. And, you know, that, that's how engaged he was. That's how informed he was. If he hadn't kept track of the politics and that World War I was on the horizon, you know, he wouldn't have prepared. And this act of his, of course, you know, led to his being knighted by the British government. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rain, as a, as a professor at the Baha'i Chair, I have to tell you, when I invite people to come and speak on various topics, they actually, for me, enlighten the Baha'i principles. Mm. They actually show me, help me understand better the hard work we have ahead of us in order to make sure that we achieve all of these um, principles, these spiritual concepts that we believe in. So Mm. Abdu'l-Baha, by being so engaged in the world, must show us what an example he was in this regard, and that we need to follow in his footsteps. So also, speaking of the example of Abdu'l-Bahá, you know, what's astonishing to me, because I'm in my old age now, Dr. Mahmoudi, I'm, I'm, I'm I, I I'm ahead of you. Well, maybe I'm way ahead of you, so okay. you can't say that. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm 55, and I'm, see, I'm feeling kind of time. And, and please call me Hoda, yes. Okay, Hoda. Um, I'm feeling time kind of tugging at my at my DNA and the fibers of my body. <laughs> Abdu'l-Bahá is 66, has been literally imprisoned uh, for 40 to 50 years. And, you know, anyone in the world would have been like, it's time for you to relax, write a couple mm-hmm. tablets, chill out, put your feet up. <laughs> and, and he goes to Egypt and Europe and the United States. And his topic, for the most part, is peace. So uh, this is kind of, he's reinvented retirement for us. Yes. You know, um, if he's the perfect exemplar, it's like, we don't, we don't get time off. Sorry. No. You know, we don't get to work on our, our scratch golf Absolutely. game. Um, but tell us about those journeys that he took and his, his mission for peace at that time, at that, at that age. First of all, I love what you just said. It is so true that he he totally has redefined retirement. <laughs> I think part of it is that, you know, for a Baha'i, a full life is a life of service in whatever capacity, right? In whatever capacity. And it's that service to others that is the focus of, of, of a Baha'i life. So I think Abdu'l-Bahá was simply living that for all of us. And, you know, he, when, when he was 66 and freed as a prisoner, uh, he also had ailments. He had, uh, we don't know what, but, you know, in, 
in this book, God Passes By by Shoghi Effendi, he tells us that, you know, he had several health issues that were not just simple. But despite all that, he set out on this remarkable journey. He went to Egypt where he met with, you know, again, some of the leading Muslim clerics who were amazed with his ideas, with his concepts, with his manner, mannerism, uh, his loving nature, his respect, all of that. In fact, in Egypt, he had to take respite because he wasn't feeling very well. But in time, then he was able to launch on his travels to Europe, uh, to Paris, uh, Hungary, the UK. But in all of those places, again, he loved meeting the local people, you know, because that's why he was there. And he loved, I mean, he goes to the Eiffel Tower because mm -hmm. he wants to see the Eiffel Tower. You know, he was very much, again, this, this side of Abdu'l-Bahá, which wants to be in the world, wants to be aware of everything, and, mm -hmm. and wants to enjoy what life has to offer. So, you know, I think, I think he liked France so much he went back twice. Anyway, <laughs> that's just my take <laughs> on it. But, but you know... He went to see a Broadway show when he was in New York. He went, yes, yes, exactly. And, and so... You know, and then eventually he went to the UK. He was uh, he visited all kinds of different places in the UK, um, and then set off to cross the Atlantic and come to the US. Uh, and he spent almost twelve months, almost, in this country and Canada. And he traveled from New York to California and back, and up to Montreal, Canada. And it, it's a rich trip where we have accounts in newspapers about his visits. We have accounts of his meeting, again, with high and low alike. And it, it's so interesting that Abdu'l-Bahá had never, you know, the only contact he had with Westerners were those, not a hum, huge amount, those who uh, would visit him in, in, in uh, Haifa or Akka. Mm. And, and that was the only contact he had. But when he came to the West, he was a modern man. Mm. He, he fit right in. And I think that's another thing. I, I love that about him, that he was so adaptable and so knowledgeable about where he went. And I think this is a great lesson for all of us as Baha'is, we don't have to have degrees to do this. We don't need to have college degrees to do this. Mm. We just need to step out of ourselves mm. and learn about the world and not be closed in uh, mm. that we might know everything because we don't know everything. We have this amazing revelation before us, amazing, really so deep and so profound that it will take generations upon generations to figure it out. But we cannot understand it if we just look inward. We have to draw from ideas outward and then try to understand better. I've talked too much. You've, you've talked just enough. <laughs> that was perfect, and that's a perfect place for us to end. Thank you for this discussion, Hoda, and thank you so much for 
your superlative work uh, representing the Baha'i community in the Baha'i Chair for World Peace, and have read so many fantastic articles coming out of Maryland and the work you're doing, especially around race and race unity and racial injustice. And and thank you for, for representing. Thanks for representing, basically. <laughs> thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be with you, and I appreciate everything that you do. Thank you. Well, a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, folks. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.